Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And my oh my, Faith, I have been waiting to talk to you for months, and I'm so grateful that you've made this time uh, to spend with us today. Uh, I want to do a brief introduction about your background and your work, your books, your TED Talk. Uh, you're awesome. Uh, let me start by just lauding you. You are a graduate summa cum laude of Georgetown School of Foreign Service, as well as honors from the uh, UC Berkeley Law School. You're a corporate attorney. You uh, go all over the world. You do acquisitions and contract law, and you've done an awesome TEDx talk. I've watched it three times now when I first heard of your existence. And then as recently as this morning, again, I wanted to refresh myself. Uh, so you've written Sex Cult Nun, which is your autobiographical memoir. Uh, it's in there with educated and uncultured and other incredible stories of um, amazing women who've come out of such an abusive, authoritarian, religious cult background, the children of God. Uh, I should say you're kind of royalty in the sense that your grandfather was the cult leader. It's kind of infamous, but whatever. Um, and you realized you love to learn and you are stifled and you don't want to, you know, have sex with people who just say, I, I own you or because God says so, I can, I can take you and just all incredible amount of child abuse. I've, uh, this is a cult I've worked with since my own deprogramming from the Moonies back in 76. I've met many people who've exited the children of God, now known as the family. Um, and uh, I want to highlight your, your I, I own me, understanding our property rights to our own bodies and your code uh, framework that I'm going to ask you to explain to our audience. Uh, what else am I missing? You have a course. I was looking at your corporate uh, course, which I'm personally interested. I probably will uh, take it because I want to learn more, even though I have an S corp disclosure and and jurisdiction is here in Massachusetts. Anyway, I'm sorry, I I, I lapsed. Um, so your memoir, Sex Cult Nun, your book, I Own Me, your TEDx talk, you're you're a, a passionate advocate for freedom and especially women's rights. How did I do for an intro? Faith Jones. Good intro, yes. <laughs> okay, great. So my own way. So I guess for my listeners who may not have heard you on Terry Gross, Fresh Air, and a million other interviews you've done with Sex Cult None, can you just give our listeners the, a framework? You grew up in, I think, Macau. Uh, and just let people know about the, the, the Children of God, a family cult first, and then we can move on your evolution to helping others. Yes. So the Children of God was actually founded by my family. So my father, uh, um, my mother was one of the early people who joined it. She was a hippie, uh, very idealistic, you know, wanting to save the world. Um, my grandfather was the guru or the prophet of the group. Mm. And um, it began in Huntington Beach, California, I think in like 1968. 
And it, from there, it's quickly gathered momentum, hundreds of followers, then thousands, and then it spread all over the world. And it was mm -hmm. a very, um, uh, I think there's a new movie out called The Jesus People or something. So it was one of the original Jesus People organizations. They mm -hmm. directed most of their efforts towards the hippies, groups of young mm -hmm. people who were disenfranchised, who'd left home already, um, who were very anti the system, right? So they had a great pool of people who really wanted to save the world, change things, right? right. And uh, my grandfather and the organization gave them a mission, gave them a focus, right? Mm -hmm. And initially it was very um, viable you know, based kind of Bible thumping. Mm -hmm. Everybody was memorizing a lot of verses and just kind of constantly staying in this state of, uh, I guess, you know, brainwashing, so to speak. But oh, yeah, Bible, he was a master. Um, and so it eventually it really there was also a very strong element of authoritarianism in it yep. that was even there from the very beginning. Even though some of the weirder, like sexual doctrines, uh, didn't really come into it until uh, some years later, uh, yeah. the the authoritarianism was definitely there, and that system. Yeah, well, when you're the prophet of God, and whatever you says goes, and you have Armageddon any moment, so you have a lot of fear, manipulation. You have a lot of power. Yes, and you know, utilizing the. He used the scriptures, but he twisted the interpretation of them to exactly. make uh, whatever he was saying. He was a brilliant man. He was very, very intelligent, very high IQ. Um, but he he used that knowledge to cause, you know, the Bible says like the, Satan uses the knowledge to cause death, right? Yeah. Um, so a lot of times people who are very uh, manipulative like that, they can be very, very smart, but then they're using... Uh, their understanding in a way that is very negative for other people, yep. especially creating yep. these kind of coercive groups. So when I wrote the book, Sex Cult Nun, I, it's, I, I wanted to portray the family, which is later became known as the family. It was originally right. called the Children of God and they changed their name yep. um, to the family of love when there was a practice called FFing and then eventually just the family. Yeah, flirty fishing is FFing for the listeners who may not know that much about this group. Sending women out to recruit, to have sex at bars, to make money, to bring people in, to get curry favor with politicians. Please go on. Yes, yeah. So, uh, so I mean, I think one of the, the, the couple of the doctrines that really made this group hit the papers, right, was because it was a it was initially a fundamentalist Christian group, but then my grandfather, due to his own predilections, I mean, he was an adulterer, you know, he was having sex outside of marriage while he was still pastoring churches in, like, I think it was the Church of Christ or other, you know, just uh -huh. sort of more the mainstream. Um, and so he obviously had these predilections, like, uh, and he was a pedophile, was too, a pedophile, I believe. Yes, yeah. his, his uh, daughter even spoke about that in the publications, just right openly, like it wasn't a bad thing at all, right? Like, oh, yeah, right. Um, so he took this, and he'd also experienced child abuse at a very young age himself. And he many thought, abusers oh, this are great, this is you yeah. know, so um, he then began to take verses from the Bible and twist them to make it seem like these kinds of actions were okay. Right. Right. Or that they were exactly. blessed or God given. Um, and so 
for me, there was definitely a journey uh, later in life, even now, going back and looking at the scriptures and saying, um, well, actually, this is not what it's saying at all, right? right. When you're looking I... at it based in context, based in, you know, everything else, it's just like... Theology, people actually know the Bible. Yeah, yeah I had to do like... the same thing with the Moonies when I got out. It's like, what does it actually say? Oh, they were cherry-picking verses and uh, putting their own meaning and spin on things. Yes. Please continue. Yeah, exactly. So that's a... And of course, like almost all religious organizations do this. They they tend to do this very, you know. The good ones don't. <laughs> very few. And the no, unhealthy sure. ones do. Very yes. few don't. Um, and, and, but there are some that don't. You know, I think there are some people that are really uh, intellectually honest in the sense that they go after uh, studying, you know, the ancient texts and really trying to identify what it was actually saying in the original not trying to make it uh, fall in line with whatever their pet doctrine or dogma is. And yeah, so exactly. I, I highly appreciate that. I value that. And for myself, that is how I have been trying to approach it um, mm -hmm. in recent years. And it is a challenge, you know, to get rid of all of these interpretations that exist in your mind that you were trained in so long to see when you read those words, you see this one interpretation of it. But in fact, you know, someone says, actually, no, it doesn't mean that at all. It actually means this. And you go and you study the original language and you're like, oh, wait, you're right. It doesn't, <laughs> you know, but it's rewiring re your, your brain and your beliefs because it's the same for all my clients and religious cults, honestly. And I do want to mention, I interviewed a friend who is in another Bible cult called the International Churches of Christ, which right now have a big set of lawsuits of people who were abused sexually in that in that particular cult. His name is Chris Lee. He was recruited at MIT and he decided to go to seminary because he wanted to figure out the Bible. So he's actually, you know, a self-professing Christian who is an ex-member who's trying to help people get out, but he's not recruiting them to be believe like he believes. He just wants to share what his journey is in an ethical way. Yes. So I think people like this exist out there. Absolutely. And, you know, for me, that's been my journey as well to figure that out. And I mm -hmm. had to go very far over to, you know, just pure logic and then be able to come back into saying, okay, now let me, let me use critical thinking and observe these things and see, you know, what is, what is accurate and what is not accurate. Right. Yep. And so, um, anyway, with the group itself, the group, uh, uh, like I said, in the early 70s. So you have to understand like the time frame. So in my book, I take people from, I give them a brief history of the group. And then I take them uh, really starting uh, from my childhood, like when I'm like four years old and some of my earliest memories and describing this, you know, running away in the middle of the night and, you know, going out to this farm in the middle of nowhere in Macau. And, you know, we're escaping bad publicity and, you know, what my parents call persecution <laughs> from the authorities and so on. So, um, you know, and then it, I, I take you through though, more in like a novel format where it's, mm -hmm. it's immediate in the moment. Cause I wanted people to know this is what I was thinking at that time. So I had to sure. do a lot of time traveling myself to go back, put myself in that mind frame, read a lot of the literature again and like go back so that I was really there and I could say, okay, yeah, I remember this is what I was thinking. This is what it smelled like. This is, you know, these experiences sure. um, to give people uh, a more detailed, vivid 
picture, but also to understand what's inside people's minds when they're in this. Yep. It's not, uh, and I don't think I could, I couldn't do that by doing a look back. Oh, this bad thing happened to me, that bad thing, right? And applying judgment on it from a current knowledge of what is right. real, right? Because I grew up right. in this, so that was all I knew. So I right. was portraying, this is what I believed or thought or was told at that moment and how I was viewing sure. situations that were happening to me and to others. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that makes it a bit different than a lot of cult books that are out there. Because um, a lot of times people are writing about their experiences in the past, right? Yeah. Um, well, for me, I was recruited at 19. So I had an identity. I had a childhood to reference. But so it was a, a different experience than folks that like yourself who were raised in it thought everything was normal until you got validation. No, this is not normal. You're right. You should resent this. You shouldn't, you know, you should be able to say no and not have somebody quote scripture and say that you're being a bad person and you're not doing God's will and all that crap. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that was, you know, I think a lot of the things that are in your model obviously were used in the group, um, you know, and uh, so there was there was sexual abuse. Uh, there was child sexual abuse for you know a certain number of years earlier on, and then that uh, became taboo. Um, but there because was of, still because of the law, you know, going after yes, them. Yes, because and... of the law going after them. Exactly. <laughs> it wasn't internal. It was uh, the 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 public going ah child well, abuse. You know, there was some stuff that was internal as well because they'd actually oh. done a survey of all the mm. young teenagers. They did like I a questionnaire see. of all the young teenagers, and a lot of them were reporting really negative impacts of oh, adult okay. sexuality. So it was both. You know, I think they were seeing that this was actually not bearing this supposed uh -huh. good fruit, you know, too. Um, right. So I think it, I mean, it, but I think probably more so was the outside influence um, right. for sure, because they didn't really retract it, at least not at that time, not until much, much yep. later. Um, but there was also, but despite that, like even ending the, you know, the, the, the child abuse aspect of it, uh, it didn't, there was still like a lot of physical discipline, but then when corporal you punishment for the, for the like adult, horrible, woman, yeah, for the, horrible corporal punishment. Yes. There was very bad corporal punishment, um, you know, restriction of food, isolation, uh, wearing signs. I was on silence restriction for like a month. I wasn't allowed to speak. Um, you know, so there was, there's a lot of very intensive coercive uh, punishment. Yep. But what didn't change was this sense of, um, and, and I write about my experiences with basically coercive sex, right? So, mm -hmm. which is rape. And I didn't realize yep. it at the time, but being forced to have sex with people who I didn't want to, um, but being told this is God's will. If you don't, you're disobedient, you're rebellious against God, you you right. know, and, and even, you know, you'll be humiliated publicly and, and you know, sort of uh, uh, punished, vilified because of your lack of submission to God. Right. So um, and I, so when I really so years after I left, I really didn't leave because I and this is what most people don't understand. Um, so there was a lot of other positive things mm. and and people don't. Like I say, people don't join a cult, they join a family, right? And or get, they're born into a or family. Or they're born into yeah. it, right? But you're yeah. getting people are getting love bombed, right? Um, they're they're getting shown this purpose. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of beautiful things in the Bible. There's a lot of great encouraging things yeah. in the Bible. So, you know, you're you're kind of at this place where it's it's both really horrible and damaging, and then yet there's these other really good positive things, right? Like like mm. people living communally. Well, when you're having a bunch of people having a whole ton of kids, it'd be very hard to support and care for yourself when you don't mm -hmm. have a group helping you, like someone's right. cooking, someone's taking the children, right? It's like right. so um I, and I think that locked a lot of people in too, because there was you weren't you weren't supposed to have jobs or economic income. So because of the that, systemites, right? The evil, the evil outside world, right? That's going to be destroyed at any moment. Yes. So there's yeah. that. And then using too. Bible verses to justify that as well, right? Bible right. verses that should not have been used for that purpose. So, exactly. um, you know, when you combine all of that, it's very hard. It's it's very hard for people uh, to leave, especially people who have big families, right? And then yes. there's also the threat that your kids were going to be taken away from you if you left, or if one parent left, then the family would help the other parent, like, take right. the kids away to some other country where they couldn't get them, right? So there's yep. just so much going on in this group. Um, but at the same point, you know, so many of the people in the group were really there because they genuinely believed. Because they genuinely mm. wanted to serve God. They genuinely wanted to help others. Of course, there were some people, like terrible people, who I think were abusing sure. that relationship. Um, and so, you know, when I left, I was like, you know, what's... I, I could see some of the good. I could see the idealism. I could see this this terrible stuff happening as well. Yeah. It's like, what's wrong here? Where... Yeah. What is the seed of corruption? What is the thing that is making this go so bad? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until like almost 20 years after I left the group. Um, mm -hmm. so I left in my early twenties. So that really kind of takes you up and I went to college and it takes you through that progression of my life, you know? Yes. And, um, I was able fortunately to, uh, put myself through school with a correspondence course when I was still in the group, but we are kind of like on the edge. And right. then when I left, I really left to go to school. I left because I just longed to learn and to just have my mind expanded. I couldn't stand being in this incredibly restrictive environment where you had to read the yes. same stuff and doctrines and teachings over and over and over again. Um, yes. And so it wasn't until after I left that I began to experience more of a different view of the world that I was able, it took a few years to look back on how I was brought up and say, wait, those things are wrong now, right? I had to right. create a whole mental model, a new mental model for myself. Definitely. And I think people are, don't maybe appreciate how important that is for people who come out of cults, um, this need to create a new mental model of the world. Oops. 100%. And, and, and you know, time. a new identity that isn't cult-based and using your own experience as a base and your own body as a base. And I want to, we could talk for hours, Faith, but I really want to hone in on your expertise as an attorney and get to your code model about I own me. And because as you know, I, I went back and did my doctoral work because I realized the law needs to be updated. Like it's not a slippery slope. We can actually, you know, define this and protect human rights using trafficking law. And then when I heard your model, it was a completely different model, but completely dovetailed uh, with your model. So please share 
I own me <laughs> and understanding our property rights to our own bodies, yes. please. So that was when I came to the realization that the key thing that was missing, and that was in the group, they had convinced everybody that they did not own themselves. That was the first lie, right? Yeah. To say, I don't own myself. I have no property right in my body. My body yeah, God owns it, right. which means the cult owns it. Yes. You know. Mm. Now, if you truly are dedicating your life to God or to a moral code, right, and that's your choice and you're doing it and you're saying, I want to live according to this moral code, that's great, right? That's between you and God. But once another human steps in and takes exactly. that role and starts coercing you in the name of God or saying, I'm the conduit between you and God, or I'm God's voice to tell you what to do with your life, that's when we have the issue, right? So in this case, the group, the leaders were saying, you need to turn over your body sexually. You need to turn over all of your belongings, all the money you make, everything you earn, right? If you didn't own yourself, well, then you didn't own anything you created. So right. they had control over everything from the, right. the very basis. So when I when I got that first primary principle that really our entire moral code is based in this concept, it's based in just these few rings, which I can show you right here, everything we consider the moral law is actually falls into one of these rings. And I've shown this to a number of attorneys. I was at a conference and a whole room full of attorneys and I told them I could show you all the moral law on one piece of paper. And I have another one that shows like contract law and criminal law like on the sides of the paper. I want to do presentations <laughs> with you, the judges and, and, and attorneys, Faith. This is such vital. Yeah, and this vital. So the, and the lawyer looked at it and he was like, three years of law school down the drain. <laughs> no, yeah. you're brilliant. I love your conceptualization. Let's dive in okay. and, and explain. So please. it begins with the, our very first primary principle is I own my body, right? I mm -hmm. have a moral right to my body. If I don't have a property right in my body, then there would be no uh, moral wrong in things like slavery, right? Or murder or assault. And it's a violation of that property right in my body that is some of our most heinous crimes, rape, uh, assault, murder, right? Those are all yep. violations of my property right in my body. Yeah, if I may interrupt, please forgive me, but when I first got involved with this forensic think tank at Harvard Medical School and they and my, my law professor friend, Alan Shefflin, talked to me about undue influence and how it was a 300-year-old law, com British Commonwealth, uh, common law. It was about property rights. It wasn't about psychological rights. It was about making sure your heirs got the property, not some caregiver who you, the church that would usurp and take away your property. So I just want to dovetail that one critical piece that the law was based on property. Yes, and I'm going to bring that in when we get to the next ring okay. because that is an element of that, exactly. So right. once I understood that I have a property in my body, the next ring is, well, that means that I own everything that I create from my body, mm. from my efforts, yeah. right? So then we have a whole other field of law, intellectual property rights. Um, you know, if I paint a painting, that's my painting. I get to sell it, right? I get to take the money from it. That takes us to the next ring, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this understanding. Once you violate the first principle, you can violate all the others with impunity, right? Mm. Um, so once I have something that I have created, right? Maybe that is my skills as an attorney. Maybe that is I, I make an invention, right? 
the law protects those things, my property. And the next thing is the deal. Now, the, the, the circle of the deal involves everything we consider both relationships and contract law. So if you are the only human on earth, none of this would matter, right? The whole mm -hmm. point of the moral law is that there is a way that we have to interact with each other so that we both are claiming our own rights and not violating another's rights. So right. the relationship of the deal, and this is what you learn in your very first contracts class in law school, is the five elements that create a good or a valid or enforceable contract. But when mm -hmm. I looked at those five elements, I recognized that if any one of those elements was missing, um, it would be, it's morally repugnant to us to enforce such a contract, right? We just know that that's absolutely wrong. That, that would be like theft of property to enforce like the contract. Lack of informed consent, right? Exactly. Is one of your big things, exactly. right? Exactly. So, you know, first of all, you have to both understand what it is you're making a contract about. If I think you're taking me out to dinner so that I can get to know you, and you think you're taking me out to dinner so that you can have sex, we're not on the same page about what this agreement is about, <laughs> right? Right, Okay. Exactly. So, and, and this is what I mean. It's not just in contract, it goes to every aspect of relationship between adults, right? Now, you know, you have a mother has unconditional love for her, small child and we'll just give and give and give. But in all adult relationships, there's always some kind of exchange. There's a whole right. field called transactional analysis of psychology that talks about all of the subtle exchanges that we do all the time, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. first of all, you got to understand what what you're actually exchanging. What's the deal here, right? Yes. There has to be an exchange of value. If there's no exchange of value, then it can be a gift, but gifts are not enforceable. Okay, mm -hmm. so it's a gift if there's no exchange of value. You have to have acceptance. That's free willing acceptance. You can call that a consent, right? You gotta say, this is the deal. This is what I'm offering. You have to accept it willingly. Mm -hmm. The fourth ring is you have to have the mental capacity to understand what you're doing. This is why we do not allow children to contract. We do not allow people who have dementia Right. If you do not exactly. have the mental capacity to understand the implications, the future implications of what you're doing, we can't enforce that contract against you. Right. And that mm. is a whole field of abuse. That's one of this comes into um, where they say, well, the child wanted it or the child, you know, wanted to do the sexual act or whatever it was. Well, they don't have the ability. They don't. Right. They can't consent because they have no idea how that's going to impact them in the future. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, yep. And then the fifth ring goes directly to what to, what Dr. Hassan's thesis is, which is undue pressure, right? Mm -hmm. Now, undue pressure is almost always the main one that gets violated, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Um, and so when you look at all the crimes that happen in this ring, right, you have fraud, that's lying about what the deal actually is. You have blackmail, which is undue pressure, right? And you have breach of contract, right? So those are all fall within in the law within the that ring. Um, mm -hmm. When we're talking about relationships, that undue pressure element, uh, it goes to so many things. It's not just um, it's not just like straight up blackmail, right? It's not like where right. I'm just saying if you don't pay me ten thousand dollars, I'm going to post these photos of you on the internet, right? That's not right. It's not so direct like that. It can be guilt. 
right? It can be a fear of punishment. It can be God is going to punish you. There's just so many ways, like even just your mother guilting you into coming home for the holidays, right? Yes. <laughs> you know, that's undue pressure too. That's emotional it's control, emotional right? It's emotional control, exactly. So once you recognize this, and then this is one of the reasons I like what Dr. Hassan is doing. But, it's Hassan, by the way. But Hassan? It's all good. Sorry, Hassan. Hassan. It's okay. okay. Um, Just call me Steve. It works. Steve. All right. <laughs> Steve. Um, one of the reasons I like what Steve is doing is that he's bringing uh, clarity to this ring of, uh, to this principle of undue pressure, which is mm. often feels a bit vague for people. Mm. And I want people to understand that it can be much more subtle than what you would typically think of. Like he's saying, it's usually used in, you know, uh, the elderly, right? You know, pressuring old people to change their wills or so on and so forth. Right. And that's where it often comes into the law. But in fact, we use it a lot in contract law as well. It is mm -hmm. an important element of contract law. So if there's an element of blackmail or something happening, well, then you can't enforce that contract, right? Um, but then you get into the issue of, well, how strong does it have to be? Blah, 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 right? So that... You know, that creates more of a, a question there. But I want just people to be aware of it, because if you have an absolute right to your body, if you have the absolute right to your time, right, then and you know that in your heart, then nobody can pressure you in that way. Because mm. even if they tell you, oh, well, you know, you're a bad person if you don't want to give money to my church or to, you know, whatever it is, right? You say, no, I own myself. I own my money. I don't have to do it. I don't have to give it to anybody. I'm not a bad person if I don't do it. Right. And then you can make a choice from your free will, right? Right. And that's a very different place to be seating. You know, if my mother is giving me a guilt trip about not coming home for the holidays, right, then I can just separate that commentary and say, look, that's none of that is valid. But, yeah, you can say you can name it yes. and say, "Hey, you're guilt tripping me. Yes. That doesn't. That's not motivating you. me to want to hang out with you, Ma." <laughs> exactly. You say that. You say you're guilt tripping me. I fully own myself and my body and my time. However, you know, maybe I really do love my mother and I want her to be happy, and her happiness um, makes me happy too, right? Like right. you know, I value that relationship. So right. then I might choose to do it out of a sense of value for it versus whatever she's trying to do, right? I can kind of ignore that and say, okay, I value this, so I'm going to do it. It doesn't mean you just reject it out of hand because someone's trying to manipulate you. You have to look at it for yourself and say, what is it that I value? What is it that I get from this? And can I make a free choice to do it willingly and happily because I know I'm doing it for the right reason. And with my with my therapist hat, I would say you can say back to your mother, you know, mother, when you say it this way, it makes me feel guilt and it makes me want to rebel. But if you said it as, you know, darling, I miss you, I love you, I would relish to spend time with you. Could you please come and visit? Then I'd be freely motivated to want to hang out with you. So you can you can teach, in other words. Uh, and uplift. But I want to I want to highlight something that's really in my mind that really is so upsetting and that is corporal punishment. Beating children which we know is traumatizing to the brain. 
like my, I have a colleague who's a Harvard trained psychiatrist who does the top, you know, uh, research on child brain development. And he's like, this is categorically bad for children. And yet the United States, unlike most civilized countries, says no, a parent should be able, to, or a school even, should be able to take a wooden board and beat the crap out of a child. And I just like, how do we, how do we deal with that religious freedom, air quotes, to say, nope, uh, let's ignore science, let's ignore the child's right to say, you know, I, I, I don't want to grow up a traumatized, dissociated person. I want to have a healthy life. So that's, that's a great question. So in the book behind me, I Own Me, it's actually a guidebook for women or really for anybody who um, to understand these different elements of abuse. So mm. uh, corporal physical abuse is one of the things I talk about, right? So I, I go through rape, I go through, you know, mm. women's inability to say no, sometimes like the fears and I go through each of these different things and I talk about corporal punishment in there as well. Um, and corporal punishment and other types of abuse it's also going to another factor, which I said, first of all, um, there is a legal fiction, a legal concept in our country that children are the property of their parents. Okay. Uh, now, unfortunately, uh, they've done something worse now in trying to make children the property of the state, but um, children are not property. Children yes. are humans already with all of their rights fully formed, right? <laughs> and that fiction it is a, what allows people to think, well, you know, it's my child, it's my property. I can do what I want with it, right? I can spank it, I can beat it. And it's if you're talking to psychologists, they'll even tell you that even with abusive spouses, right, there's this concept that the, the person is an extension of themselves versus... Uh, their own independent person with their own rights, feelings, right. and thoughts. So that's when you also, that that runs over into, well, you're mine. So I can do what I want to. I can hit you, beat you, et cetera. So right. that concept is an element, right? And that is yeah. something that we have to counteract. Um, and what I talk about in my book is I say that we should not see children as our property, right? Because each person is their own consciousness from the you know moment they're born. So if you... You, it's not like when you turn 18, somebody waves a magic wand over your head and all of a sudden you have rights, right? It's, mm. That's not how life works, right. right? Right. So to start with, for parents to really see themselves as stewards, not owners. Yeah, totally. And I think that's a, that term is saying this is stewardship. Um, I have these parameters that I, I, you know, I'm not supposed to abuse them, beat them, starve them, kill them. You know, like I'm a totally. steward and my job is to do my best to raise a healthy functioning adult, which can make good decisions. And exactly. um, by good decisions, we mean knows how to take into account long-term consequences of things, right? right? So it's a totally different framework for raising children. Yeah, do you know Marcy Hamilton's work, the law professor, CEO of ChildUSA.org? She's, um, she's, she's exactly on this point. She's like, children are not property. And her organization that's been working to uh, get rid of statute of limitation for child sexual abuse says that the, the, the neuropsychiatric definition now is 25 for adulthood. It's not even 18 any, in terms of the science. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. From anyway, keep going, please, with your model. <laughs> okay. Now I lost where I was. <laughs> I apologize. No, you were okay. talking about children are not property. We, we, parents should be stewards to bring out the uniqueness in their children. Right. And so, and then the other point I bring up is those two points really. And it's just the illogic of someone saying, I'm going to hit you so that you don't learn to hit, so you don't hit others. It's just completely illogical. Like you hit Susie, now I'm gonna smack you. Like, how am I teaching them not to hit? Like, it, that just doesn't make any sense to me, right? Just right. from a purely logical standpoint. But yep. the other element is this um, belief that the Bible teaches physical abuse, right? And well, there's a line from the Old Testament. Right. There's a number that's, of lines. There's quite a few lines, mm. like spare the rod, spoil the child. That's a favorite that's the one, main right? One. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Which is, you know, and then there's other like, you know, but I, I remember reading this great uh, uh, sort of overview from a pastor who was walking through it and saying, actually, this doesn't mean what you think it means, right? Mm. Um you know, a lot of these verses, the rod wasn't that you were supposed to beat somebody with a rod, right? When they were talking about the rod, um, they were talking about the rod in the sense of like how a shepherd deals with his sheep, right? Mm. So the mm. rod was a symbol of uh, love, was a symbol mm. of governance, was a symbol of, you know, um, maybe boundaries or guidance, okay? Mm. And, you know, if you're looking at the Lord's, you know, um, the Lord's Prayer, right? It's like, or many other verses in the Bible, right? It talks about discipline. It doesn't talk, it doesn't say beating, okay? Right. It says discipline. Well, there are many forms of discipline, you know? There are, totally. you know, you can restrict things. You can let someone suffer the consequences of their action. You do this, you don't get to go here, right? You don't, you know, you don't want to eat this, you sure. don't get that, right? It's like, there's consequences to action. That is sure. a much more natural form of discipline versus beating, Right. And the other thing percent. is, like, when the Bible talks about the rod, it's not saying beat somebody with it, right? The shepherd didn't beat the sheep with the rod. Right. The rod was used to defend the sheep against wolves. Right. Okay? And it was used to guide the sheep. He'd put it on one side of the sheep and be like, uh-uh-uh, come away from there. If the sheep was about to fall off a cliff, they would use it to catch them and pull them <laughs> back, right? right? It wasn't, like, it wasn't to beat the sheep with, right? Right. So Agreed. it's taking... Uh, people have taken what their culture has told them, right? This mm. Judeo-German culture of this very strict, like beating children as a way to, you know, uh, engender submission versus like right. growth, right? Um, and then they took those verses from the Bible and applied it to that mm. versus saying, well, what could this really mean that's not maybe beating and violating somebody's body, yeah, but Amer America needs to pass the uh, the rights of the child and abolish corporal punishment, period. That's my firm opinion as a therapist and a mind control expert. And you're absolutely right. I think when people say, why are Americans so violent? Look at who's beaten as a child and told, let me, let me make a lesson out of this. And, huh? as opposed to role modeling, talking with words and explaining what the advantages are by exerting self-control or by not harming somebody else. Yeah. Alice Miller's work I found was very helpful for me. Yes. Um, yeah. Alice Miller just, uh, she had some great books on that. And she catalogs for different uh, people like Hitler and other people in history, 
what their early childhood experiences were with mm-hmm. abuse and how yeah. that kind of helped form who they became. Um, and to me, that was very helpful just in even understanding my parents and and understanding that people had abused me. Um, yeah. You know, it was helpful for me to be able to uh, have a different perspective on that. Yes, definitely. So I want to ask you some questions, uh, attorney, if I may. So there was a, a lawsuit by three people who were born into Scientology. As children, they signed a billion-year contract to work for the organization, and they were suing the leader and the group for trafficking because they were paid like 50 bucks a month for years and years and years and years. And a judge recently presumably said, nope, Scientology has binding arbitration and therefore they're not able to bring, even though they left the cult, they're not able to bring a a, a suit because the culture of the group says that we, we don't respect the law. You have to have binding arbitration within the cult. How does that make any sense at all? Well, I, I can't say I know all the facts. So as an attorney, I have to say you have to yeah. know all the facts because it's yeah. very fact dependent. But I will say this. Um, if a child signed a contract, it's not valid. You can't enforce a contract that a child signs, right? And obviously, this is a contract for a billion years. I mean, it's just not even like rational, right? Right. Um, so it would seem to be a ridiculous contract anyway. But yeah. the first element, which is what I told you in that framework, is that if a child signs a contract, it's not enforceable. Now, did these people sign another contract later after they were 18, right, that enabled them to enforce an arbitration clause against them? I don't know. But yep. um, I don't think you can also just say, well, just because this religious organization doesn't believe in it, you can't do it. Um, that doesn't make sense to me. But the right. truth is, there's so much of our law government and this is one of the things that really upsets me now is all of the abuses of our government against people, all the ways mm. our government violates these principles against people. It is the we don't have a justice system anymore. Like a lot mm. of people are not aware of how bad it has become. Uh, they've taken they passed all of these laws that really make it almost impossible for people to get a fair trial to a large mm. extent because mm. you can. Um, like I, I know somebody who was, I think, I think he wrote a book about it. Um, he was actually uh, thrown in jail, felony. He was an Iranian student here studying for his MBA. And uh, the DA, who wanted to make a name for himself, decided to go after the guy and um, uh, accused him of, you know, violating America's laws about like uh, money laundering with Iran, right? Which he wasn't doing. And mm-hmm. there's a very clear provision in the law that states your parents or your relatives can give you money so you can buy a house in America if you're here studying, right? You can buy a condo yeah. or whatever, right? So that's what he had done. And um, the judge refused to allow the testimony of the guy who'd written the law. He mm-hmm. was the one who had actually written the law. They refused to allow his testimony, which obviously was completely relevant, right? Right. And so then he got sentenced to felony. He was in jail for two years fighting to get out again and like fighting on appeals and everything. And of course the DA goes away with this big woohoo, we got him, right? 
Um, and eventually, you know, it was appealed. Eventually he was released, but his life is ruined, right? He's got his yeah. felony record. And, and that's just one example. I mean, there's many examples of the government literally stealing from people. So we talk mm. about all this stuff, like, and, and so another example of a law like that, a client of mine, um, this was maybe 15 years ago. So this is not new. What I'm mm. telling you this stuff, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these instances, and this is not new where uh, they took a law which was originally designed only for to be used against like the mob, right? Mm -hmm. Like alcohol and the mob and so on. And yeah. now they use it all the time against regular Americans and business people. Mm. And so in this case, what the state did was they went after, um, uh, so this was like 15, 20 years ago, they went after my client and he was a young businessman at the time. He was selling supplements mm -hmm. online, you know, or whatever, right? So they went after him for an FTC violation, saying he's like making claims about his stuff that's not true, right? And, mm -hmm. um, but what they did is they took his account, he had a million dollars in there, they froze his account. Mm -hmm. They froze his account. They told him, if you fight us, you can either accept, you know, take a felony, walk away, leave us all your money, don't bother fighting us or you can fight us, but now we've frozen your account. So you have no money to fight us and you're mm. probably still going to lose because now you have no money to hire an attorney to fight this claim. Yeah, right? Abuse, abuse. Of and power. then you know what they do with that money? Most people don't know what they do with that money. Tell me. They Tell take us. it and they split it. Hmm. They split it. When they confiscate people's bank accounts like that, they split it between the state and usually maybe some federal agency. So they hmm. literally just claim your money and split it. Hmm. And this happens all the time. It's like hmm. straight up theft. Like yeah, I, there's no other way to describe it. It's, abu it's, it's abuse of power. It's abuse of power. And, and it's so sad. Like, you know, as a lawyer, I see this stuff happening all the time. Remember my first year, uh, I was just a first year in law school. They made me write a brief on how a case was supposed to come out and they presented it to the court. And I did all the research, man. I knew that law like this. I, I was absolutely right at how this case, all the precedent says this case should turn out like this. So yep. I listed everything, gave it to them. They go to court. The judge decided the other way. This was like a mm. tort case against some poor pregnant woman who like, mm. you know, had trauma and birth or whatever, right? The judge decides the other way. And... I was like, how can they decide against the law? That's literally the law. It's all the precedent. All the court cases right, right there. And they were like, well, the judge can kind of decide whatever they want. And mostly nobody's going to have, very rarely is it ever going to, you know, get appealed or come back to them, right? Mm. Of course, this poor mother couldn't afford to appeal the case, right? So, you know, when I, I just seeing all of that in our legal system, yeah, made me so upset and so angry about how it's sure. not like we have this ideal in America that we have this great legal system and everything. But over the years, it has been worn away all of these yes. principles. And so yeah. and, and we have our government literally ab abusing power. Yeah, right? we have political appointments of unqualified people to be judges and the no standards for training judges to make sure they know what they're doing. Yeah, or to make it's, sure they know the law, right? I mean, yeah. it's like, how can they not make them study the law and the basis for the law, right? The exactly. foundation of the law. Yep. So. It's sad. 
let's be on a more optimistic, you know, social advocacy, you know, more power to ex-members who've experienced the loss of our autonomy, gotten our minds back, where, you know, I look at you as a role model of uh, incredibly bright, talented, creative, ambitious, successful former member who said, I didn't want to be there and be a baby machine and just, you know, do the laundry. Like, I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to travel. I want to contribute. Let's inspire some former members because I have a lot of former members who like to listen to this. <laughs> absolutely, like, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of people ask me, how are you so okay, <laughs> right? Like, you seem like I'm generally happy. Of course, I do have anxiety sometimes and so on. But like, in general, I, you know, I'm happy. I'm productive, a member of society. I'm not on drugs. I'm not like, you know... I, I do mm -hmm. binge watch TV sometimes, uh, but you oh, know. naughty you. <laughs> you know, but you know, it to just talking to people and saying, "How did you get there?" Right? I think one thing for me was, you know, I did memorize a lot of the Bible, and I had this belief in God that everything was going to work out for the good eventually, right? Or that mm. I could take these experiences and turn them into something good, right? Mm -hmm. And that was a core belief I had as a child. And I used that yep. over and over and over when I was suffering. I would keep, you know, quoting this verse, all things work together for good to them that love God. And mm. then I would think about, well, how could this possibly work together for my good? And I didn't realize I was using a very uh, effective psychological technique because I was future pacing myself. I was yep. looking to the future in a time when I would not be in this moment of extreme pain and I would be out of it and I could be using this and some benefit might come from it, right? Yeah. And and so I think that is an amazing psychological technique is to ask yourself, you know, well, how might this help me in the future? How might this make me stronger? Or how might this make me more compassionate or more yes. understanding on someone else's sufferings, right? And I think that is a very powerful um, tool. Definitely. It doesn't negate the bad thing happening to you. It doesn't make it okay. Right. And the other thing was that I had to make a choice. I had to mm. make a choice that it was up to me. And, and this is one of the core things of this framework is when you when I understood I own myself fully, that means all of this is mine, my thoughts, my emotions, my actions. I'm the only one that can do anything for myself today. Mm -hmm. No matter the bad stuff that happened to me, and now I can clearly identify and name the bad stuff that happened to me because I have the framework. I can yes. say this was a violation of the principle of my body. This was a violation of the principle of undue pressure. This was a violation of my creation, right? I can name it so I know yes. exactly what was wrong about it. And that's also very helpful and clarifying for somebody who suffered abuse. At the same time, I recognized at this point, I have to take full responsibility for myself, for my yep. own healing, for my own development. And I said, what do I want? Do I want to be miserable? Do I want to be happy? Like, those are the choices, really. Yeah. Right? And I said, I'm going to be happy. I want to be successful. And I'm going to go after that aggressively. Right? Yes. And it's just simple logic exercise. Right? And a lot of yep. people don't do it. A lot of people are like, oh, well, I need to stay damaged or hurt because that's going to punish my parents who did these terrible things. Well, it's not really going to punish them, frankly. No. Because if they didn't care about you enough to abuse you, 
do you think they're really going to care if you're still <laughs> suffering now? Like, you know, right. so just that ability to say, okay, this is what I want. I'm going to go for it. And it's my responsibility now. Like I can't, I can't do anything about what happened to me in the past, but I yep. can, I can get therapy. I can do psychological techniques. I can, you know, work on my mental state. I can do all of these things to bring myself into a better, more healthy uh, place in my life. So I can really enjoy having yeah, you, success in relationships. Yeah. And the proof is in the pudding. We've we've arrived at similar conclusions, even though I'm older than you and I've been, you know, trained as a mental health professional. If I may, I'll just say what I've come up with with my clients is first of all, instead of looking to me to fix them, I take the model of you need to fix yourself. You need to, you know, own your own mind, your own body. So being in your body is the cure to a dissociative disorder, which is what brainwashing and mind control is diagnostically. Uh, being in the here and now with a future positive orientation, with an internal locus of control, not looking out to someone else to tell you what reality is or what God wants for you, but where you are listening to God within you right? Mm -hmm. And having the smarts to have a toolbox to analyze, this is a good thing. This is a bad thing. It's a bad thing because of this. It's a good thing because of that. And learning through experience so you don't make the same mistakes of judgment over and over and listening to other people's experiences so you can learn vicariously from their stories too. So I mean, Absolutely. you Absolutely. you were expressing kind of where I've come out after all of these decades. It's so simple. It's your mind. You should control it. And we are embodied minds. We are. It's not mind body split. Any group that says you, your body's evil and and ignore it and whatever that's not healthy. No, because uh, your guess what your brain is inside here. It's part of the body. <laughs> It's one of the and, organs. And of I the would body. say we have a gut brain too <laughs> yes, and a heart brain we do. too. We do. It's not just the skull brain. Right. Well, and this is why this is so powerful because this is a tool for your toolbox. Right. Exactly. This is a tool for your toolbox where you can put that in and you can ask yourself, um, and this is about healthy boundaries. Is somebody telling me that I don't fully own myself, that I need to do what they're saying? Is somebody trying to say that they have some kind of um, right to my creations, right? Or yeah. that I need to turn them over. And, you know, looking at the deal and the element of undue pressure, right? It's like, this is a this is a checklist that you can go through, both check yourself in a relationship, but also to check your leaders, your government, your, you know, your religious leaders, whoever it is, and say, okay, are they violating any of these principles? Now, the reason I recognized this was, was so important was because without a clear simple, just standard of principles where you know if somebody sure. violates that, that is wrong. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter what reason, doesn't matter for God, doesn't matter for family, doesn't matter for, you know, any right. of that stuff. If they're violating a principle that's on there, I own my body, I own my creations, the elements of a good deal, right? Then mm -hmm. you already know that it's wrong, mm -hmm. right? And so then you get to choose. It frees you to make a choice. Right. Knowing knowing helps you to have boundaries 
to go, wait a minute, this person, like I loved your example about somebody taking you to dinner, but they want to get in your pants. It's like, wait a minute, boundary, like what's the expectation and to be really clear about expectations. Yes. Yeah. And the other thing for a legal perspective too, is this is one of the areas that I think this really helps. And I would like to see it used in these kind of court cases is um, when we're talking about rape, right? So often the conversation when someone gets raped goes to all these other things like, well, was she dressed sexy or she was, you know, drunk or she was making out with the person or she was making herself available or like they would they would throw all this mud at the screen, basically. But when you understand every human has an absolute right to the autonomy of their own body and that nobody should have sex with them unless they actively consent right, right, with a clear mind. Then and have the capacity and have the capacity. A, they're not totally drunk out of their head, right? right? Then you you know what the standard is, right? And so then you can make a decision in that court case in a very different way, and it's not confused by oh she was wearing a short skirt. Well, who cares if she's wearing a short skirt, right? Just because my car is painted hot red doesn't mean you can steal it. It doesn't matter, right? Right. Just because my wallet's no. out on the table and it's convenient to take if you steal it it's still stealing right so yeah when you, exactly. when you when they have this clarity about what it means for our bodies especially as women because this often gets um obscured through the cultural norms right yeah. then it gives us a clear way to you know present these kind of court cases in court uh in the law and i think hopefully get people uh justice yeah, exactly. I do want to say uh, boys are raped too. Absolutely. It's not only women and uh women can control men and and take it, you know, take them over and 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 exploit them as well. Um but at least in the UK they've passed a course of control law now. I I I'm sure you're aware of it where a man controlling a woman, isolating her, making a her dependent, et cetera, is now a crime. And I heard that Ireland, which recently passed the law, actually prosecuted and, and sentenced the first uh, person for abusing a woman that way. Mm. And so you, you are right. Um, there is, I think the statistics um, show, you know, I think it's like uh, the percentage of, of, you know, people who are abused is the 90 something percent is women. But, you know, there is there is still a very significant uh, percentage of men who are abused, especially when they're young, especially yeah. as boys. And I've actually talked to a lot of them after they've mm. read my work and stuff. They've said, hey, you know, this happened to me, too, actually, yeah. you know, yeah. um, and it is very difficult, very damaging. So it's absolutely not just something that happens to women. And the coercive control that we're talking about, not just even sexual abuse, it happens to all of us all the time, right? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. that, and that's what we really need to become more aware of as a society. Yep. So we're wrapping up. I wanted to ask you, are you aware of the I Got Out effort of uh, to try, like me too? We're trying to like destigmatize. Hey, happened to me. I was... I was in the Mooney cult and I got out and I have two masters and a PhD and, you know. Yes, I was on their podcast. I was on the I Got Out podcast. Okay, awesome. Yes. So, yeah, so we want to encourage more people if you have a story, 
you know, it wasn't your fault. Something happened. And the key is like reclaiming your power and moving forward in a positive way and knowing that there's a community of us. There are many tens of millions of us, frankly, out there. And we know what it's like to lose our freedom. So we really cherish the ability to decide for ourselves and our own destiny. Absolutely. Right? You know, and, and my parents have been out now for years. And, you know, people often say, well, how can you forgive them? Like, I have a good relationship with them now. But they have learned, you know, they've learned, they recognize what happened, they recognize what, you know, they did. And, and, you know, I've shared this framework with them. And I've had very good discussions with my mother, both about like her own experiences. She also had terrible experiences mm. in the group, you know, it wasn't just she wasn't just abusing me, everybody was abusive to her. Of and that course. abuse had been happening even before she entered the group, you know, so because mm. it was very prevalent in society at that time. So yep. it's just uh, I think I've been able to take a step back and look at my parents and look at other people as people, right? And see mm. the influences that were at play in their lives. Yes, they made bad decisions. You know, it doesn't yeah. change the fact that that was wrong or that was abusive. Or, but I also understand it. And what I look at is, you know, can somebody admit they're wrong and change and move forward? Exactly. Right? And, and if that's the case, then, you know, um, I welcome that. Right. I, yeah. That's totally. that's where we should be coming from. So, uh, you know, most of these cults they really get people when they're at a young, vulnerable age and they're trying to or situational, or situational vulnerability, vulnerability, divorce, death of a loved one, illness, moving to a new city, state, or country, losing a job. There's a life cycle events that cause more, you know, vulnerability. The biggest vulnerability, Faith, is just ignorance that it can happen to you, that you think, I'm too smart. It would never happen to me. And it's like, whoa. You know. I, didn't they do a study that said that it's generally smarter people that it happens to? I, you I know, believe that, that was a, that was a thing. I don't know if it's scientific, <laughs> but that's my, I mean, 47 years, there are some of the most brilliant, talented, creative people on the planet who are grew up in a mind control cult or got recruited or in a country that's a dictatorship that functions like a mind control cult. And so for me, I say the more mind you have, the more you, it can be controlled. You know, <laughs> the more you want to improve yourself or make the world better, mm -hmm. those motivations can be twisted and, and, and co-opted for someone else's power, you know, power, money, or sex ambitions. I like that. I think that's a good way to, that's a good way to express it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I look forward to meeting you in person. Are you open to doing like a law journal article or something? Maybe we could combine our models and do something for lawyers and judges to like say, Hey, there's a way to there's not a slippery slope here. There's actually a way to clarify it and identify yeah. what each of these principles are. Yeah, yeah. I think that could be very interesting. Great. Yeah. I look forward to it. I hope to meet you someday and continued success. You too. And thanks and congratulations so much. for all the work that you've done, all the books you've published and your dissertation and you know how you're moving this topic forward. I think it's very easy for a lot of people who get out of cults to just um just try to ignore it, you know, just try yeah, to walk away, compartmentalize it, it, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it takes a lot of courage to go back and confront it and talk about it and then work to develop something to help people move out of it. So I want to yeah. commend you for that. 
Thank you. I had no idea when I first got out, I would spend my life doing this. I can assure you, I had no clue how many other destructive cults there were or just how, like, it's the number one issue right now on the planet is the issue of the undue influence and how it's being, how people are harming each other with disinformation and phobia programming and all this other stuff through the internet. Um, and the only cure is, is psychoeducation, just people sharing their stories, explaining it in simple ways that people can adopt and realize, yeah, we need to, to know this. We need to teach our kids this. Mm -hmm. We need to teach our parents this. And critical so, thinking, which is just sadly lacking in all forms of schooling. Um, it's one thing you do, you actually get trained in when you become a lawyer. And I'm just shocked that we don't train. I mean, I know why we don't train people in it mm -hmm. at a younger age, because it's much easier to control a population that is not analytical and critical thinkers. But I uh, definitely I totally, the parents need to focus on I that. totally agree. And homeschooling, you know, unless it's really top notch where they're teaching science and how to analyze uh, fallacious logic statements and understand social psychology methods for manipulation. Um, so it really, we really need to roll up our sleeves. And I, I, I'm all for binge watching occasionally, but also I, you know, my son is 20 and he's like into video gaming. It's like, dude, less time on the video gaming, like learn some skills and like make a life for yourself. Yeah, it's yeah. just such a distraction culture right now where people don't, they can't focus attention. Like in order to think critically, you have to be able to have an extended focus of attention. But with exactly. everything moving faster and faster and faster, um, just like flashing adverts and all this stuff, people can't think through it critically. It's just designed to trigger emotion after emotion. Um, exactly. And that is really, really dangerous. Yeah. Thank you, Faith Jones. Uh, Sex Cult Nun, I Own Me, and your moral framework for reality testing. And yes. like, it's my, it's my body and it's, I am my own property. No one else has a right to control me. So kudos to you. Thanks again. Thank you, Dr. Bye. Okay. Bye. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump in that order. These books are a culmination of 45 plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. 
While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at IGOTOUT.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.